it's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Friday, September 30th, last day of the month here on the Guy Benson Show. Of course, 2022. I'll add the year. I'm Guy Benson. Welcome into the program. Glad to have you all here every single weekday. Between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern, if you can't listen live, many ways to listen live, including on our great affiliates across the country or our partners at odyssey.com, we have a podcast that's free of charge, absolutely no charge to you, and it is on demand every day at the end of the show. Also, bonus Benson on the weekends, huge growth on the podcast this month. We are very grateful for that. Big lineup today. We'll get to our first guest here in a moment. Bill Malugin joins us in studio. He's in town. Looking forward to that conversation later this hour. Shannon Bream, host of Fox News Sunday, will be here in studio in the next hour. Sean Trendy of Real Clear Politics with his read on the House and Senate as things stand right now. One of the sharpest analysts out there. We'll get to that in our middle hour. And then Trey Yingst, our Fox News correspondent on the ground in Kiev, Ukraine. He will bring us an update from that part of the world coming up in our final hour today. Here on the show, our website is GuyBensonShow.com. All the content there, including that free podcast. You can also follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. With us now as we begin today's show is U.S. Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas. And, Senator, it's great to have you back here. Guy, great to be with you. Thanks for having me. So my understanding is you are about to embark on quite a journey here. You're calling it the Take Back America Tour, where you're going to hop on a bus and you're going to go from stop to stop, 25 in total, on behalf of 32 candidates in 17 different states to try to rally voters ahead of the midterm elections. How did this tour come to be? And I'm also very curious what your criteria were for choosing, of all the candidates in the country, these 32 to go and lend your support to them. Well, the the tour is happening because this election is, people say it every cycle, but I believe it, the most important of our lifetime. The damage that has been done by Biden and Harris and Pelosi and Schumer, we are seeing our country on a dramatically wrong path. And, And I think November is going to be an historic election, not just a red wave, but a tidal wave. I think Republicans are going to retake the House. I think we're going to retake the Senate, and, and I am putting every breath in my body into making that happen. And so this tour, we're starting in Texas. Uh, the tour starts tomorrow in Tomball, Texas, just outside of Houston. I'll be with Wesley Hunt. We go from Tomball down, down to the Rio Grande Valley. We go to McAllen. Uh, we go to Harlingen. We go to Laredo. We're, we're down there. I'll be with Myra Flores. I'll be with Monica Dela Cruz. I'll be with Chip Roy and Cassie Garcia. Uh, and then we go to New Mexico after that. And and from there, we just proceed going around hitting battleground Senate seats and also strong conservatives who had the potential to win House seats. So we go from Texas to New Mexico. Then we go to Arizona, Nevada, Utah, 
Kansas, Missouri, Iowa, Ohio, Pennsylvania, Virginia, North Carolina, Tennessee, Georgia, Florida, Michigan, and we end in Wisconsin. Wow. That, that is quite an itinerary. I can imagine it'll be fairly exhausting. And it sounds like just the names you mentioned in Texas alone, that's a group of badasses there. If people want to learn more about this tour, where you're going, if they might see you in their neck of the woods, is there a website? Is there somewhere they, they can track this, maybe social media? So there is a website, and it's a, it's a simple website. It is tcbustour.com. Again, that's tcbustour.com. And you can see all the stops. You can see the addresses, where to go. There's actually an interactive map that you can trace the bus as it travels, uh, travels around the country. And, and the idea is to go into these hot contested race, races and turn out, turn out activists, turn out young people, turn out Republican women, turn out everyone who's fed up with in, the out-of-control inflation and crime and the disaster at the southern border – and come in and energize activists because this election is going to come down to turnout. And and I'll tell you, if you look at some of these House members that, that we're supporting in contested races, uh, I have an initiative that I call 25 for 22, where I've selected 25 ha- House candidates, endorsed them. I'm campaigning for them, and we've raised over $3 million for them to help fund their campaigns. And the objective is not just to retake the House and retake the Senate, but to elect real conservative stars, men and women who will stand and lead and fight so that when we have a majority, we actually will do something with the majority and, and, and start to pull this country back from the brink. So that's TC, as in Ted Cruz, bus tour, tcbustour.com for more information there. Senator, you mentioned inflation. Part of that, and there's another bad inflation number out today, Part of it is gas prices that's been it's overall hurting Americans has been for a while. It peaked over the summer. It's been coming down. And we saw the Biden administration trying to take credit for that while taking no blame when it was reaching, you know, five dollars a gallon plus nationally. But over the last week plus, we've seen that number creeping back northward. And here come the old talking points, the stale scapegoating from President Biden going after oil companies and gas station owners saying, don't you gouge the American people by raising prices. He's also saying on multiple occasions absolutely false things about the price of gas, saying that in a number of places around the country it's below $3 a gallon on average. That is not true anywhere. It just seems like they've gone back to flailing on this particular challenge that they have politically, part of which is out of their control, but part of which is self-inflicted. Yeah, uh, it it is – very much self-inflicted, and unfortunately, we're seeing right now shameless demagoguery. If you, if you look at inflation, inflation writ large is always caused by one thing, and that is the government spending too much money, borrowing too much money, and printing too much money. And when you, you have what we've had the last year and a half, which is trillions and trillions of dollars in a wild spending spree, the effect is what we're seeing, inflation across the board. Now, gasoline inflation in particular, the the price of a gallon of gas, the average price nationally, when Joe Biden became president, was $2.38 a gallon. That was the national average. Within a year, that had more than doubled. And we are right now, a lot of folks are easily paying 100 bucks, sometimes even 150 bucks to fill up your truck or your minivan. And, and, And that is 
hurting American families across the country. Now, the amazing thing, Guy, Joe Biden campaigned when he was campaigning for president. He campaigned promising to do exactly this. He said he would end oil and gas drilling both onshore and offshore on federal lands, that he would shut it down. He promised the radical environmentalist he would use executive orders and regulations to implement the Green New Deal and to hammer oil and gas production. And that is a promise that he is committed to. He has hammered oil and gas production, including critically putting enormous new burden, burdens for producers to get either debt financing or equity financing. So one of the most effective tools he's used is shutting down the resources available to drill for oil. And you know what? When the supply goes down and the demand goes up, the result is the prices do exactly what they did. And, and he's counting on the dishonest corporate media to repeat his silly lies that it's the local neighborhood gas station owner that just magically decided, you know, five bucks a gallon is what I'd like to charge. Apparently, the big bad oil companies, they didn't want to make profits when Donald Trump was president. They didn't want to make profits when anyone else was president. Yeah. It's just when Joe Biden became president, they said, hot diggity damn, let's make us some money. It, it, it is absurd, <laughs> but he's counting on dishonest media to cover up his lies. Yeah, so it's like they were greedy for a while there over the summer. Then things came down, so I guess the greed went away briefly, but the greed is back. It's just totally incoherent. But that's what he's saying, and I guess that's the argument. And you're right, to a certain extent, he campaigned on this. It's his own version of promises made, promises kept, and I just wonder how the American people feel about those kept promises and the impact on their wallets. Meanwhile, on the border, you, of course, represent a border state, we're at least finally talking about this issue beyond certain areas of the media, and I think that is largely attributable to a decision made by the governor in your state, Greg Abbott, to start exporting a tiny fraction of this problem to so-called sanctuary jurisdictions. Doug Ducey in Arizona got in on the action, and of course Ron DeSantis sent some folks up to Martha's Vineyard, and people lost their minds. And we've had this very angry debate over this overall question I'm just glad we're having it. What do you make of the attacks against Republican governors who are just, in my view, putting the mirror up to the left, forcing them to look at what they've created? I, I think that's exactly right, that, that, that this has forced a, even a tiny bit of the national conversation. You know, this idea is something that I proposed a year ago. A year ago, I introduced legislation uh, in the Senate to move illegal immigration to places like it move illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, to Nantucket, to Cupertino, California, to Palo Alto, California, to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, basically all of the places that rich liberals go vacation and and happily say visit the problems of illegal immigration on everybody else but us. And in a year and a half as president, we have seen under Joe Biden 4.4 million people cross illegally into the United States. Texas is bearing the brunt of it. I spent a lot of time down on the border. I see the human tragedies, the children being abused, the women being sexually abused, the dead bodies, the, the, the people dying of overdoses. And this actually goes back to the point we were talking about a minute ago about Biden's lies on gas prices. Part of what facilitates these disastrous left-wing Democrat policies is the corporate media is so corrupt that they will not cover it. They ignore it. It does not exist. 
And amazingly enough, 50 illegal immigrants show up at Martha's Vineyard, and suddenly all of these rich liberals lose their minds. Mm -hmm. And and it illustrated the utter hypocrisy of the left, that that, that why did they care – about the 50 illegal immigrants in Martha's Vineyard, but they didn't give a damn about the 53 dead bodies in a tractor trailer outside of San Antonio that the cartels had let die uh, of, of oppressive heat. Those bodies they don't care about. They don't care about the children being brutally assaulted every single day by the cartels, and they don't give a damn about the over 100,000 people that died last year of fentanyl overdoses and, and opioid overdoses because of the Biden border crisis. This was exactly the right thing to do, and I'll tell you what, I commend Greg Abbott and I commend Doug Ducey and Ron DeSantis for following through on, on, on that suggestion, and they need to do even more. You know, the mayor of, of D.C. said it was an emergency when she had 6,000 illegal immigrants. Well, you know what? D.C. ought to have 60,000 and then 600,000. The mayor of New York declared an emergency Again, with a few thousand, we ought to send 50,000. We ought to send 500,000. Why? Because Biden is happily sending 4.4 million to Texas and the rest of the country. Senator Cruz, I want to ask you in the time that we have left about a foreign policy issue. We've watched these protests in the streets of Iran, some extremely courageous women in particular defying this regime And they're cracking down on journalists. They're arresting these women. Several of them have been murdered, one of which sparked a lot of this. And I just wonder if you would reflect on what we're seeing from the people of Iran and then also juxtapose it with this fixation, this obsession with the Biden administration that will say nice words about these women and their protests. But meanwhile, they are actively seeking to further enrich the regime with this utterly foolish and foolhardy nuclear deal that would somehow be worse than the Obama era one. And like to add insult to injury, it's being negotiated via the Russians of all people. It's just very hard for me to reconcile. Well, it's impossible to reconcile rationally. Um, Let me say, first of all, the the, the women and the men we see in the streets of Iran that are that that are protesting, they're demonstrating incredible courage, incredible heroism. And and the people of Iran needs need to know that the American people in the world stands with them and encourages them. They are facing brutal theocratic dictators who are evil, who are horrific. The Ayatollah who rules them with a steel fist, he is a vicious theocrat. He is rabidly anti-American. He regularly leads mobs chanting death to America and death to Israel. He is the world's leading state sponsor of terrorism, murdering American servicemen and women, murdering American civilians. Now, bizarrely, the Biden administration loves this regime. You know, you said a minute ago they're seeking to, to, to help fund the regime. That's true, but, but, but it also doesn't even acknowledge right now. They are funneling billions of dollars into Iran. Why? That's right. Because we have sanctions in place that that I fought very hard to put in place that, among other things, we had shut down their oil sales under President Trump. I urge President Trump to end the waiver for oil sales. He did, and we shut down their oil sales. We cut off the cash. What has Biden done? Refused to enforce those sanctions. So Biden is allowing the Ayatollah to sell a million barrels a day of oil. What do you think is funding the stormtroopers that are beating and murdering the citizens? It is Joe Biden's oil giveaway. By the way, he hates 
American oil and gas production, but he's very happy to effectively subsidize the production of our theocratic enemies. It is bizarre. It makes no sense. And and I'll say one other thing, which is what prompted this was was a a beautiful 22-year-old woman who went outside in Iran not wearing her headscarf. And the religious police for the Ayatollah, they captured her and they beat her to death because she dared not to wear a headscarf. Just days later, Leslie Stahl from 60 Minutes interviewed Raisi, the the president, a theocratic butcher and torturer and murderer, interviewed him and and, and gave these, these softball questions, and there she was happily wearing a headscarf. Not not even not even pausing to note that a woman had just been beaten. Yeah, and to that death was on U.S. soil too, Senator. I mean, it was, it was here uh, above all else that you just described. No, I think that's a good point and a uh, something that we should note as well. And we have to leave it on that note because we are up on a break now. Senator Ted Cruz, he's got the Take Back America tour starting this weekend. TCBusTour.com for more information. Senator, always good to talk to you. Thank you. Thank you, guys. It's the Guy Benson Show. Just getting started. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. I'm Guy Benson. We are back. We went a little long there with Senator Cruz. I hated to cut him off on Iran, but we were up on that break. I did mention in the context of inflation, this new number that just came out, Ben White, who is Politico's chief economic correspondent, he noted this this morning, that core PCE, which he says is described as what people pay for stuff other than volatile food and energy. So core PCE popped back up to 4.9% last month, defying Fed rake. Uh, Fed rate hikes thus far. It was a worse number than expected. So it's another piece of economic data on inflation that is worrisome, that might cause the Fed to then raise rates more to try to tamp down and corral inflation, which is good, except the rate hikes by design slow down the economy and push us into a more painful recession. That's how it works. And so there could be a lot more pain ahead. I wonder if the White House is planning to have some sort of celebration on inflation today now that this number has come out. seems like that's their move. The Guy Benson Show continues. Bill Malugin here after this. Out of the gates and ready to go. Hey, it's Hutton with Roe. Hot Mike is here on the Outkick Network. We've got your afternoon covered with the latest sports discussion, and it's available wherever you find your audio. Daily analysis and news. He is hot. I am Mike. Actually, my name is Chad. <laughs> His name is Jonathan, but you get the picture. We're going to bring it every single day. Whatever you want to call us, we'll respond to. We just want you to respond to what we're dishing out every day. And while you're here, we hope you subscribe to the podcast, like, subscribe, and share. Talking about the issues you care about, Guy Benson. Back here on the Guy Benson Show. Thank you for listening. GuyBensonShow.com is our website, and the podcast is always free of charge on demand. Well, I'm very excited to welcome here in studio our colleague Bill Malugin, 
national correspondent for Fox News. We almost always talk to him when he's at the border, occasionally when he's uh, when he's in L.A. And then when I'm in L.A., you're like here or vice yep. versa. Finally, we get to meet in person. It's so good to see you. It's good to finally see you in person. We, we always do it over, you know, thousands of miles away. It's great to finally see you in person. So what are you doing here in D.C.? Uh, we are going after politicians, asking questions about the border. Figure we'll bring the border to them if they're not willing to come down there and see what's going on. Uh, we've been reporting on it for a year and a half straight now. The chaos, the anarchy, the death going on down there. And uh, they continue to insist that it's secure and people aren't walking across. It's not true. So we're coming to D.C. to shove some microphones and faces, get some answers out here. So who have you caught up with? Let's put it that way so far. Caught up with Corey Bush, Benny Thompson, Chuck Schumer, Nancy Pelosi. Um, who else? Ayanna Presley, uh, Veronica Escobar. Um, let's see. Who else have we had? Henry Cuellar on the Republican side. We've got Kevin McCarthy, uh, Chip Roy, um, John Thune, and um, who else? Oh, I, I, I left out the best. We uh, we paid a visit to Secretary Mayorkas at his home. Ah. DHS was ignoring my request for an interview with him for a week. I reached out a week before I came here to D.C. and said, hey, I'm going to be in town. Uh, I'd like to sit down with the secretary and talk to him about the border crisis or CBP Commissioner Magnus or Border, border Patrol Chief Raul Ortiz. Give me anyone. They blew me off, as usual. They, they did not reply. Uh, they also conveniently did not send out Mayorkas' public event schedule for this week for the first time. We usually get it every, every Friday, huh. and it suddenly did not appear. So we were left with no choice, no public events, and they're ignoring our request. So uh, we stopped by the secretary's house earlier this week to question him about the border, and uh, we will be airing that on Monday. Do you know where it'll air if people want to see that? It's going to be all over Fox News on Monday. I'll be doing live shots with it all day long. But okay. let's just say he didn't want to talk about the border. I'm shocked. Are you? Nope. Uh, but I'm, I'm eager to see that, that clip. You mentioned Pelosi. So you asked her a question. This was today, wasn't it? That was today. I, yeah, today a few hours ago. Yeah. she did her weekly press conference, and she was taking questions. She took one from you. And let's start with the one that maybe got a little bit less attention, mm-hmm. just a straightforward question from you, and then a short answer from her, cut 24. Yesterday, Kevin McCarthy told us he essentially feels that um, you are holding House Democrats hostage from speaking out about the border crisis because of the way you whip on the House floor. How would you respond to that? And do you believe the border is secure? Well, I believe that we have to have a secure border. And I think that we are trying to address uh, the president is has a plan to address that. What plan would that be? Because he's been president now for close to two years, and the results are what we talk about every single month, Mm -hmm. at least on this show with you. I guess it's a good thing to hear a leading Democrat say that we have to have a secure border, but her colleagues insist and assert repeatedly that we do have one. Her her saying we have to secure the border would imply that it's not secure right now, right? Right. Which, yeah, we hear the from the White House podium every day the border is secure or people aren't walking across. So, yeah, it was significant to hear her say that. She said that multiple times in her answer that we have to secure the border, meaning that it's not right now and it has to get secure. At least that's the implication. That's the implication. She might deny that if, on a follow-up. Well, but. Uh, you know, but to our, to our ears, that's what it sounded sure. like. And she said the president has a plan to do that. Um, we are wondering what that plan is as well. I mean, it's been, what, 16 months? I, I don't think you can go find the president at his house. Yeah, that no, might be that, a little, that, a little that, harder. That's not going to happen. But look, it, from what we've seen on the ground, that plan doesn't exist or 
All it is is faster processing or decompressing, as they like to call it. Uh, their primary concern seems to be the numbers of migrants who could potentially get into these facilities and overflow and have bad images leaked to the press of people standing shoulder to shoulder or sleeping on the ground. In order to avoid that, they want people processed as fast as possible, as fast as possible. Get them in and out. Get them in and out. You hear CBP Commissioner Chris Magnus talking about how proud he is for Border Patrol agents in the El Paso sector to, quote, decompress the migrant population. Someone, you know, driving it on the road to work or listening at home might – what does that mean? That's an, an odd term. What it means is they're just clearing space out. They're releasing them into the country. They're expelling and deporting very few people. Last year, ICE deported – Hang on. So that's one of the metrics of success that they're touting. The decompression yeah. is success, but that success – takes the form of releasing more people into America who are here illegally. Correct. I mean, look, look at the numbers. Look at their own numbers. Last year, 1.7 million illegal crossings set the record, which has now been brokered by, broken by this year. But last year, 59,000 deportations by ICE, lowest in agency history. On one hand, you got the most illegal crossings ever. On the other hand, you have the fewest deportations ever. What kind of a message does that send to migrants who are coming to the border? Then you have Secretary Mayorkas. Well, a very clear one. Yeah. You, and remember, you have Secretary Mayorkas himself saying just being in the country illegally should not be grounds for deportation. That's another message. Well, at the same time, they get up to the podium and say, do not come. All their actions are telling people to come because they know if they step foot on U.S. soil, they got a very good chance of being released into the country. That's the lesson that they've learned. They learned it well. Yeah. The result speaks for itself. So also at this press conference, I want to come back to Pelosi. Cut 23. This one went pretty viral because she's attributing this to other people. But the mentality here is interesting. Let's listen together. We have a shortage of workers in our country. And you see even in Florida, some of the farmers and the growers saying, why are you shipping these uh, immigrants uh, up north? We need them to pick the crops down here. But that doesn't mean that we don't recognize our moral responsibility as well. We need them to pick the crops down here. That was part of her criticism, it sounded like, of Governor DeSantis Mm -hmm. sending the migrants, as he famously did, to Martha's Vineyard. And she's saying, well, actually, you need those illegal immigrants in Florida to to pick the crops. Yeah, that that comment raised a lot of eyebrows, I don't think just on Twitter, but also in the room I was in, because she's essentially saying, you know, these illegal immigrants are just crop pickers, dishwashers, you know, do that sort of work, that sort of a thing, which um, I, I checked Twitter a little bit after that, and I saw that, you know, taken off like wildfire. Oh, yeah. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. Our guys at Town Hall clipped it immediately. I saw the RNC had it, uh, other right-leaning media outlets. I also wonder if mainstream outlets might cover that because that would absolutely be demagogued as a racially insensitive remark if mm-hmm. a Republican had made it, and I think we would see – a lot of huffing and puffing and indignation about it from the CBS, New York Times, NPR side of the world. Mm -hmm. So far, it seems to be right-leaning organizations that are noticing and everyone else kind of looking the other way for Speaker Pelosi, which is something she's used to in a lot of respects. Now that you're here in D.C., I do want to ask you, as you approach these Democrats in particular, Mm -hmm. who are avoiding this question like the plague, Media's avoided it, and they were baited into covering it by Abbott and DeSantis in particular, I think. With the, I admit their stunts. They've been successful because they forced a conversation. The media couldn't resist the catnip, so they went to it. Now we're having the debate. 
you are sort of synonymous now, I think, in a lot of people's minds with someone actually covering this issue faithfully and consistently. Democrats may not want to admit that they watch Fox, but they kind of have some sense of what's going on over here. You're having an influence. As Democrats see you approaching with the camera and the light and the microphone, is there a glimmer of recognition? Is there a sense that they want to have the conversation or, or scuttle into an elevator and get away? How has that gone? There's been a mixture of both. So we've had some who won't even make eye contact with me. Ayanna Presley wouldn't. Cori Bush wouldn't. Uh, we've had others who will take time to us. Veronica Escobar was great. Henry Cuellar was great. They took a large amount of time to talk with us and really get into the issues, which we appreciate. Uh, when Secretary Mayorkas made eye contact with me in the wee hours of the morning outside of his house, um, it seemed like he recognized who I was. Um, he didn't want to talk, though. And again, we'll be hearing that on Monday. Um, He's I, like, hang on, you're not supposed to be here. Well, he, he, he has repeatedly said that the border is secure and that we have operational control of it. So I asked him, how can you consider a border secure when you've had more than 900,000 gotaways? You know, why is what you say in private to Border Patrol agents behind closed doors on leak audio different than what you tell Congress and the American public? Those are some of the questions I put to him. Well, we'll see what he says in response or doesn't say in response Monday on the Fox News channel across our platforms. I'm sure we'll have that audio here on the Guy Benson show as well. I was sort of fascinated, and I did a monologue about this on the show last week, I believe it was. This, I'd call it something of a hit piece from Politico against you specifically, where they were calling you Ducey at the border, uh, which is sort of an interesting way of framing it, I thought. You and Peter are both regular guests on this show. You ask the types of questions that routinely are asked of Republican administrations. Um, It was clearly, in my mind, planted by the White House. Mm -hmm. They called someone up and said, we don't like this guy. He annoys us. Let's try to kick some dirt on his reputation and the coverage that he does of the border and kind of make it seem like he's not a legitimate journalist, really. He's an advocate. And Democrats have tried this for many years Mm -hmm. uh, with various Fox News reporters, correspondents, personalities, etc. So I'm not exactly stunned that this happened. But it wasn't subtle, right? This was the White House... I think trying to work the refs in terms of the rest of the media to not really take you seriously because you're just presenting the facts. Mm -hmm. And often there's visuals to back it up, which they also seemed annoyed by, that you actually have cameras and are demonstrating the problem. Like this is some brand new concept in TV journalism. They don't like the drone, do they? They don't like the drone. But I think this is not so much about getting anyone who watches us to distrust you or to deflect away from the numbers, this is about telling other journalists, if Bill Malugin is on this story and reporting it, don't take that seriously. When you saw that story come out, I'm just curious what your reaction was to it. First off, I did not know what the West Wing playbook was. Um, Dana Perino actually texted me and said, hey, look what they wrote about you. I didn't know what it was. I'm not a D.C. guy. Um, then I, I, I read it, and... Um, I was honored to be compared to Peter Ducey, to be honest. I love that guy. He does a great job every day. Um, But in all seriousness, um, look, I know that some people want me to shut up, be a good boy, and ask the president about his ice cream instead of what we do down on the border, right? What we're showing every day is a direct contradiction to what we hear on that White House podium. They say the border is closed, secure, people aren't walking across. Anybody with a pair of eyes knows that's not true. And how do they know that? Because of the images we're showing every single day. 
We've been doing it for a year and a half. They can say whatever they want about me. I don't care. They can dig into where I worked in college or the fact that I used to go by Billy when I was 19 years old. If they think that somehow waters down me or my reporting, they can think that, but we're going to keep doing our job every single day as we have done and just try to pull the curtain back and shine some light on what's going down there or what's going on down there because, to be honest, there really is not a whole lot of a media presence down there. There are some great independent reporters working down there. There have been a couple of other networks down there. Um, but for the most part, it's really just been Fox that has been there from the beginning and doing it very consistently. And I know they don't like that. I know it's a difficult political topic. And look, the Republicans aren't blameless as well. They've had full control of Congress before. No legislation has gotten passed. Both parties over the years obviously have blame in this game. But right now, this crisis has never been worse, right? The numbers have never been like this. The U.N. just designated the U.S.-Mexico border as the deadliest land crossing on the planet. We've had more than 1,300 migrants die at the border since President Biden took office, almost 4 million illegal crossings, more than 900,000 known gotaways. You've had more than a quarter million unaccompanied children show up at the border. That's enough to fill up almost three Rose Bowls. For that visual, many of them traffic, some of them drowning in the river, which we have seen. We've seen corpses of little kids pulled out. We've seen corpses of adults pulled out. People are dying down there every single day. A few years ago, there was a big hoorah when the Trump administration was separating children from their families and you know putting them in cages, the same holding facilities that are being used today. All the media was down there. There was this huge outrage. But now when we have people dying every day, including little kids, you don't hear about it. You, you just don't. There's not the same level of coverage, and the deaths have shot up through the roof, so have the fentanyl poisoning deaths. It's getting worse by the month. The numbers keep getting worse, and all we want to know is, you know, is there going to be a plan to slow this down? Because it's not fair to the Border Patrol agents. It's not fair to the migrants. It's not fair to anybody involved in the process. So they can say whatever they want about me, you know, go to media outlets to complain about me or try to you know, tar me a little bit. I, I really don't care. I'm going to keep doing my job. Mm-hmm. I got a great team at the border. I love my guys. We're going to keep doing the job. Everybody we go down there with, it's an important job, and we're going to keep doing it here at Fox News. Yeah, I think that's the right mentality. And by the way, as you're rehearsing all those statistics, as we've talked about them and updated them on a very regular basis here on the show as well, there's a whole additional universe of unknown gotaways exactly. on top of all of those numbers, which is just sort of staggering. I do want to ask you, though, because you, you made reference to the Billy nickname and where you used to work. That was a follow-up item. That wasn't even yeah. the original piece. That was the next day. Yeah. And they admitted a Democrat or two whispered to them, oh, you missed the best part about Bill Malugin. He used to go by Bill, and he worked at Abercrombie & Fitch in, in college. In college, yeah. Wow. So I just want to dig dig a little deeper on this scandal, Bill, as we're blowing the cover off of this outrage. So were you the guy who stood outside the store with the that, music pumping that, that, to try to entice people in? That's exactly right. With the uh, heavy, painful scent of cologne wafting throughout the store, I was paid about $8 an hour to stand at the front door and say, welcome to the pier. Welcome to the pier. <laughs> Welcome to the pier. I couldn't fold the shirt to save my life. I ran the register for the most part. Okay. But I'm waiting for the next expose guy Uh-oh. of when I worked at TGI Fridays in high school. Wow. That was my first job. What do you have to say for yourself? I don't know. I'm still trying to figure out a PR plan for that right it's now. A, like popcorn chicken <laughs> or whatever. That's out, outrageous <laughs> that you would do such. And I'm just trying to figure out, like, what exactly – is the hit there like oh he works at he worked at Abercrombie a decade plus ago I don't know so he's good looking and so what a lot of people on television are good looking it's a very weird thing to me I don't know it just seemed like a little veiled attempt to maybe try to make me less credible that hey yeah. I, I worked in retail hey, look and- at this look at this lightweight who as a 19 year old or whatever worked in retail yeah 
It's like, oh, it, that bothered me. So I went off. And now here you are, and yep. you're actually, I think, being – you're taking the high road and, and sticking to the issues. So I'll do the same. Bill, it is so good to see you. Likewise. Face-to-face. And keep doing what you're doing. We will keep having you on. And from time to time, if you're here in town, uh, definitely let us know. We'll have you back. we Will do. Glad to be here. Thank Bill you. Malugin, national correspondent here at Fox News. And Monday – We'll get a lot of this footage all over Fox News Channel of these interviews that he's been doing, including Secretary Mayorkas at his house early in the morning. That should be very interesting. We'll take a break. We'll come right back. It's The Guy Benson Show. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Glad to have you here on The Guy Benson Show. We've been talking a lot about crime as an issue in the midterm elections. We had Jason Rance here talking about it yesterday. We also played sound this week of the mayor of New York City, Eric Adams, talking about how New York City has a brand. New York's got a brand. He said, unlike Kansas, does Kansas have a brand? And he chuckled and all the people at the press conference were laughing. Well, here's part of the brand. Latest story from the New York Post. A beloved FDNY lieutenant, so in the fire department, was stabbed by a maniac on a Queen Street Thursday afternoon in an unprovoked attack. It occurred as she went to grab food. Lieutenant Allison Russo Elling, 61-year-old grandmother and a department veteran who is a World Trade Center responder on 9-11, was stabbed more than 20 times by an assailant in Queens. The surveillance, uh, the surveillance footage is brutal, and this maniac just went up and Stabbed her 20 times, and she's dead. They've caught the guy. He's 34 years old. He's been charged with murder. Kind of seems like this type of broad daylight vicious attack is part of the New York City brand right now. You know what sounds pretty good at the moment? Kansas. I wonder if the mayor has a comment on this. Another hour of the Guy Benson Show coming up. Shannon Bream is here. From the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Guy Benson Show. A brand new hour here on the Guy Benson Show on this Friday. Happy Friday, one and all. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. Our podcast on demand and free every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. And such growth on the podcast. We'll talk more about that later in the show. We're just so excited and grateful to bring you some of those updates. And we had a very busy first hour. We have an equally busy middle hour. And you don't want to miss the last hour. So I'm just, just don't go anywhere is the point. Stay right here with us on this Friday edition. Let me bring you a quick Fox News alert and tell you about the markets. Oh, the Dow really hit hard today. It didn't look this bad earlier, but... The Dow closed down almost 500 points, down 495, closing out the week at 28,730, clearly in bear market territory. And I think perhaps the new inflation number that we talked about last hour might have spooked the markets in a sell-off toward the close here. So the bell rang about seven minutes ago, and it was not great news up on Wall Street again. But we just had sitting across from me last hour, Bill Malugin, who's in town from the border, someone who is based here in D.C. and we love chatting with on a regular basis, is our colleague and friend, Shannon Bream, chief legal correspondent here at Fox, anchor of Fox News Sunday, 
host of Live in the Bream, which is a podcast, foxnewspodcast.com, best-selling author, twice over, The Mothers and the Daughters of the Bible Speak is her most recent book. It's it's This intro keeps getting longer, Shannon. <laughs> it sounds like I've done some stuff. You've done I some stuff. I read it and I'm like, what? Is that me? Um, meanwhile, I'm sitting here impressed by all of your very easy uh, discussion of the markets. Like, you know about everything. Well, I'm Guy a Benson generalist. knows about everything. Uh, that That is a real stretch. But I, I'm a generalist. You have to sort of yes. be flexible. I You know, I have my specialties. Mm-hmm. Like, I'll be talking later on about a concert I went to last night. I can Ooh. confidently discuss that. Okay. It's going to be way cooler than any concert probably I've been to. I don't know about that, actually. So I might take Well, unless that it was back. Lawrence Welk or something. Uh, <laughs> I, people will just oh, – I, people know the answer if they listen to yesterday's show. Okay. We will talk about my experience at Carly Rae Jepsen. What? Last night, yeah, I know. You can <laughs> okay. ask. You can ask me in commercial break. We'll discuss off here. That's fine. I've no. I've had a lot of judgment, especially from producer Christine oh, up no. in New York. No, but I. But I do <laughs> want to start, Shannon, by asking you to put on your chief legal correspondent hat for the moment, because the Supreme Court is back mm-hmm. after a summer off, a very interesting summer, obviously, given oh, what yeah. happened at the end of last term. A new term underway next week, I believe it is. Mm-hmm. Preview what we know is coming. What are some of the big cases coming down the pike? There is the big affirmative action case that involves Harvard and University of North Carolina, where Asian American students have gotten together and said, the use of race is actually hurting us as Asian American students. We can have top scores, the best GPAs, and we're getting passed over for students who are either black or Hispanic. So they're arguing that affirmative action, uh, this is something the Supreme Court has taken so many bites at. It needs to be further clarified about exactly how you can and cannot use race in considering college admissions. That's going to be a huge case. And that's the top one, maybe, with mm-hmm. eyes on. Any other blockbusters? Because, mm-hmm. I mean, it's hard to get more blockbuster than last term. I know, it is. So there are a couple of election gerrymandering, districting cases out of North Carolina and Alabama. Could be very interesting. Could impact how cases, uh, how elections are decided in 2024 and beyond. But there's also this case with a web designer out of Colorado. There's a state law there that's an anti-discrimination law You remember the baker who went out of Colorado to the Supreme Court on whether or not he would have to bake a cake for a same-sex ceremony. Now, he said that violated his religious beliefs. I will serve people of all backgrounds. I will sell them cakes, but I won't do specific crafted customized things. Well, this is now a website designer because that cake case For a same-sex marriage. Right, and the cake case didn't solve anything. It kind of said he was mistreated by Colorado authorities that didn't handle his case correctly, but it didn't really answer these bigger questions about if you're in the stream of commerce and you have that kind of viewpoint, which customers are you allowed to serve and not serve? So this web designer is coming back. She has the same argument. I'll serve anybody. I'll do business with anybody, but I won't do, for example, a same-sex wedding website. So LGBTQ rights versus religious liberty or free speech rights, that's going to be a big case. And I wonder if we might actually get the underlying issue resolved. Right. Because they've been doing a lot of punting on that where Mm -hmm. it's sort of like technical win for the baker but not really a resolved issue. Mm -hmm. And I think the persecution continues. I'm very much in favor of LGBT rights for obvious reasons. I'm also in favor of religious liberty for, I hope, also obvious reasons. I don't think that they have to – live in conflict with each other. Mm-hmm. But I think there are people, I think, deliberately trying to test what the limits are mm-hmm. for maybe less than great purposes. I think sometimes it's sort of retribution and let's try to, you know, it's vindictive. I think other people just want to see, okay, what are the rules? And so far the court has been kind of unwilling to go yeah. there. 
And they need to. I mean, this is something that businesses and people all over the country who have varying, uh, you know, concerns about either side of this debate, there has to be some middle ground, I guess, that the court can find. We just saw almost like the official welcoming of a new justice on the court, investiture, something like that. Yes, Inve- look at you. Is that the right term? Investiture. In- yes. Investiture of mm-hmm. Justice Katanji Brown Jackson. Mm-hmm. She will join the court and dive in with the arguments and everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, significant day. It is. It's historic. So she's been officially part of the court all summer doing the work getting ready for these cases that start on Monday. But today was the formal process where the president was there. It's a very nice event for her family, for those who have supported her, and for the other justices on the court to formally welcome her. So, yeah, she's going to have a big term ahead of her. And there was photo day at some point, right, where they all sit there and— They hate it, I think. They don't (laughs) look super We've heard some grumbling, but it's called the SCOTUS class picture. But we have to have it. It's, you know, they're all in their robes and they sit together. And every time there's a new justice, you got to update it so we can see who's on the court— And they all play nice, and they're ready to go. Although there's been some indirect, less-than-nice playing over the summer, mostly involving two justices, Kagan on the left, Alito on the right, involving the legitimacy of the court Mm -hmm. in the public's mind. There's been a number of polling nuggets out there and pieces of data suggesting that trust in the Supreme Court is down, uh, You know, people's faith in it as an institution has dropped, significantly. I know defenders of the court say it doesn't matter what public opinion says. It's the Constitution. It's the law. That's the whole point of this third branch, unelected people, lifetime lifetime appointments. But I think Kagan's been sort of playing up the legitimacy questions, Uh, obviously very upset about the Dobbs decision and other things. And Alito is not taking that lying down. He's been firing right back on this. What do you make of this kind of, I don't want to call it a cold war, but there mm-hmm. there have definitely been eyebrow-raising comments, and it's mm-hmm. not necessarily a mystery how this high-level debate is playing out. Yeah, and you've seen the Chief Justice out there as well. And you remember not long ago, Vice President Harris was out there talking about the, quote, legitimacy of the court. And so that bothers a lot of people on the bench to say, listen, you can disagree, which these are kind of the statements we've had from the Chief and from Justice Alito. You can disagree with where we come down on these opinions, uh, these decisions. That's fine. But when you, I think Alito's line was, when you question the legitimacy of the court, then you've crossed a line. So whether that's for external critics, whether it's for internal critics, um, people will be left to decide that. But, you know, we'll get a look at a Monday. They'll all be back on the bench together. And by the way, first time we'll have like a real full courtroom since before the COVID lockdowns began over two years ago. And there's going to be live streaming audio. Is that yeah, right? Yeah, we got that during COVID. And we're really those of us who like that. Um, we're excited they're going to keep it. So they'll keep putting out the audio live so people can listen if they care about a case. Um, but humans back allowed in the courtroom with no masks, no testing. It's back to pre-COVID. And by the way, just to make a quick point editorially on my own behalf about the attempts to delegitimize the Supreme Court over opinions and rulings that some people don't like, I think it's dangerous. And I think that for the most part, the mainstream conservative movement has not done that even in the face of adverse decisions by the court. Dating back decades, people were furious about Roe versus Wade, which I think was wrongly decided from the very beginning. You flash forward numbers of years, you can just through the years, there's a few major like signpost decisions that really infuriated conservatives. There was one during the war on terror about detainees and their rights, Buma Dien or something like mm-hmm. that, that was 
outrageous to a lot of national security conservatives. The Obamacare decision, obviously, was outrageous. Some social conservatives were upset about Obergefell, same-sex mm-hmm. marriage. You saw critiques of the justices and their rulings and their reasoning. You didn't see, at least in a mainstream way, Republicans, elected Republicans in a conservative movement saying the Supreme Court is illegitimate and their very legitimacy is now you know, in question. I think that is a bright line that would be dangerous to cross. The left is increasingly doing it. I don't think it ends in a good place for them. And they got their way in a lot of senses for decades at the Supreme Court, not always, but on some big, especially Mm -hmm. social issues. And I think for them to not get their way, finally, a little bit because of hard fought elections and the process playing out and legitimate changes at the Supreme Court uh, in terms of personnel uh, for them to now do this now that they're on the losing end, I think, is is a very bad thing that they should not do. Not that they necessarily care what I have to say about it. Well, there was a piece over on the opinion page of the Wall Street Journal not long ago talking about this. It said you look at people like Justice Thomas, who was on the losing end for decades of a lot of those decisions, as you point out. Yep. And he didn't go public and start ripping on his fellow justices and say this Hand court's terrible about, and about we've the lost court. the legitimacy. Yeah. Yep. So a little Message over there to Justice Kagan, perhaps, <laughs> and others. Shannon, all right, the legal correspondent hat off, Fox News Sunday anchor hat on. Big show ahead mm-hmm. this weekend. Brian Kemp, the governor of Georgia, and then the FEMA administrator, obviously a huge mm-hmm. news story from your home state this week. Yeah, Florida. I finally f- tracked down my last person I couldn't get. I found him today. He's in the Fort Myers area. We knew they'd lose power and probably sell. So very comforting to know. That they're physically okay, but there's just enormous destruction there. He's dealing with looters, and he's like, listen, I'm trying to give him a break because I know people are desperate. He had stockpiled water and things that he's more than willing to share. But it's a tough situation. So we'll talk to the FEMA director. We do have Governor Kemp on. We've invited Stacey Abrams. She is always welcome, and I think we'll have her soon. But to talk about the midterms and tight races, and there are a lot of brand-new polls we've got out on Arizona, Pennsylvania, Georgia, all these big states. Um, And so we've got an interesting tidbit, too, sort of a reporter's notebook. Bill Malugin is joining us to talk about some exclusive material that he's got and we'll share on Fox News Sunday. Ah, so I think we might have gotten a little preview of that mm-hmm. just in the last hour here mm-hmm. on this show. He's had an interesting few days, it sounds like, yes, here in he Washington. Has. So he'll preview that on Fox News Sunday. He will. And I think it's exploding all over the news channel on Monday, is yes. my understanding. Yep. So a lot going on on Fox News Sunday. This Sunday morning, check your local listings and your local Fox station. It replays later in the day on Fox News Channel, anchored by our friend Shannon Bream, who is here with us. And it is always great to see you, Shannon. My pleasure. Have a great weekend. Thank you very much. Shannon Bream here in studio on The Guy Benson Show. Shannon, thank you very much. When we come back, I want to address actually one of the issues that the Supreme Court has delved into recently with a great deal of fanfare and controversy, abortion. I have a few comments I want to make about Something that I saw that really bothered me. Plus, coming up later in the hour, Sean Trendy of Real Clear Politics. What is his view on the midterm elections? Very smart guy. He'll give us his take. Coming up, it's the Guy Benson Show. Don't go anywhere. I'm Guy Benson. We are back on this Friday. It's the Guy Benson Show. Always glad that you're listening. So we've had, for obvious reasons, over the last few months, dating back to the spring, quite a few conversations about the difficult issue of abortion on this show. I'm pro-life. I explain why I defend that position. I'm not maybe as fully 100 percent 
dogmatically pro-life as some other people, and I respect their opinions, but I am definitely leaning in the pro-life direction in terms of my policy preferences that I think are advisable and ethical in the United States. And whenever we're talking about those issues surrounding this central controversy, I really go out of my way to try to draw a distinction between people who disagree, and I know that there are some of you in this audience who do, who are pro-choice versus a radical fringe element that unfortunately I think is getting larger or at least has very much outsized influence over the Democratic Party and our news media, which is a pro-abortion group and mentality. I think there are people who might have some ethical or moral qualms about abortion, certainly later on in pregnancy. They also believe that a woman should have a right, at least for a period of time, to choose whether or not to terminate a pregnancy. That's sort of a mainstream pro-choice position, and we could have a respectful dialogue about it. There's a different category, a separate category of pro-abortion fanatics. And I know sometimes when we have these discussions and debates, there are some on the pro-choice side who indignantly insist there's no such thing as pro-abortion. That's a smear. Right? That's an invention of the right. That's an invention of anti-choice people. That's not real. We're pro-choice. No one's pro-abortion. Except some people absolutely are. Yesterday, the Women's March, remember that group, which has had a lot of controversy, including the fact that it's been rife with anti-Semitism, especially at the leadership level, and explicitly rejecting large swaths of women who don't agree with them on all their radical platform items. The Women's March, their official account, verified blue checkmark account, tweeted yesterday, quote, we're not just pro-choice. We are proudly, unapologetically pro-abortion. Retweet if you agree. And there's thousands of retweets and likes. Proudly, unapologetically pro-abortion. To me, that is unspeakably ghoulish. And I wish that that mentality were not so heavily ingrained in today's Democratic Party. I truly wish that. But the reality is that when it comes to their voting record, almost every single Democrat in Washington, D.C., in Congress falls into that category. Whether they want to admit it or not, that is what they have voted for. And they've been given air cover to sort of glide past their extremism by a news media populated by journalists who also fall under this umbrella. So I will say I'm pro-life. I respect people who are further, perhaps, to my right on this issue. I understand and respect people who are pro-choice, and we can disagree. I cannot respect anyone who is proudly or unapologetically pro-abortion. I can't. It is just a red line for me. At least it's not a position. It's not a stance that I can respect in any way. I think it's wrong. I think it's ghastly. And finally on this issue, there was... A House hearing this week that touched on abortion, one of the Democratic witnesses was a doctor from Planned Parenthood, one of the big abortion mills in this country. And the doctor was asked a straightforward question by a Republican on the panel. Just listen to this very quick exchange. Cut 21. Can biological men become pregnant and give birth? Um, 
So men can have pregnancies, especially trans men. Can biological men become pregnant and give birth? And the answer from the Planned Parenthood doctor is men can have pregnancies, especially trans men. I know when they say, yes, men can be pregnant and men can have abortions or whatever, they're talking about trans men. But the especially in that answer is absolutely confounding to me. I would love some follow-up questions. Men can be pregnant, especially trans men. Who are these other men who are not trans men who can be pregnant? Doctor? Would love to hear that answer. The Guy Benson Show continues after this break. Don't go anywhere. You're listening to a new generation of talk, Guy Benson. Just past the midway point of today's show, it's Friday on the Guy Benson Show. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. Podcast is free every day. And we are very pleased to welcome back Sean Trendy, Senior Elections Analyst at Real Clear Politics. Sean, good to have you here. Hey, thanks for having me. So I wrote about something that you wrote at TownHall.com today expanding on and adding some flavor to your latest piece at Real Clear Politics. And I started off my column saying that when you speak or you write about elections, especially in the final stretch toward Election Day, I sit up and I pay attention, I listen, and I consider it carefully. And I wanted to make sure that I was able to bring your expertise and your thoughts to this audience as well, because we are now inside six weeks until Election Day, November 8th. And I was hoping that you could just sort of walk us through your preview of the House elections that you published at Real Clear Politics. And maybe we could start here, just sort of the broad strokes trend of what midterm elections typically look like under various scenarios. Then we can start to have a conversation about which of those scenarios is most applicable to this year and this cycle. Yeah, so there's a a bunch of different ways that they can unfold. Um, But to look at it one way, they're they're typically referenda on the party in power. Uh, And since it's very difficult to govern this country, they typically go poorly for the party in power. Now, there are some exceptions, um, elections where the president's party does well or only loses a handful of seats. Those only take place – uh, in a situation where a president is extremely popular, the economy is booming, um, years like 1998 or 1934, um, that is not this year where Joe Biden has a 42 percent job approval. So I think we start out with the assumption Democrats are likely to lose a, a fair number of seats this cycle. I think that's what a lot of people have been at least speculating about for well over a year. You have pointed to a few of those exceptions to the rule. You say about 12 percent of the midterm elections going back have sort of gone okay for the incumbent party. But the rule is what you just said. The out party tends to gain. I saw some Gallup numbers that generally the out party wins two dozen seats on average. If a president is unpopular below 50 percent, that number of seats on average goes up to 37 gains for the opposition party. I'm not sure the Republicans are starting from a low enough position for a gain of 37 seats to be likely. I think it's definitely possible. But you have on the other side of this people arguing that this time it's different. 
And you get this, you know, right? Partisans on both sides typically will look at maybe historical patterns that aren't beneficial to their side, and they will create some sort of alternative narrative in which, well, that might have been the case many times before, but not this year for reasons X, Y, and Z. And you can't discount that. It is not possible to prove that it won't happen. But you seem generally skeptical of the this time it's different mentality. Yeah, this time it's different has a pretty poor track record. Um, you know, it's not to say it never happens. Like a lot of people didn't think Donald Trump, uh, for a lot of good historical reasons about party nominations, didn't think Donald Trump would be able to win uh, in 2016. And of course, he did both the Republican nomination and the general election. So different things do happen. But I've generally been of the view, unless I'm provided with clear and convincing evidence, I assume this election is going to be uh, like all the other ones. There's been some contrary indications, like some of these special elections, um, but even those I don't think uh, are as strong of evidence as people think they are. Why? Well, because first, special elections are special. But I think what's happened this election is that the Dobbs decision came down and it supercharged portions of the Democratic base uh, that wouldn't normally be engaged in an off-year special election. And if you look at these special elections, it was always counties with high student populations that were pushing the nominee over the edge or high levels of whites uh, with college degrees, like the Mayo Clinic in that Minnesota district that was uh, closer than expected. Um, But at the end of the day, the the fundamental rule is Joe Biden's down at 42 percent. And to, to win control of the House or the Senate, Democrats are going to have to persuade a lot of people who don't like the job. Joe Biden is doing to go ahead and pull the uh, pull the lever for Democrats either anyway, and that typically doesn't happen. Yeah, I, I think that's probably fair. And is it also fair to say that if Biden is at forty one or forty two percent approval nationwide in some of these swing states or districts, that number for him is even worse? That's right. Biden won with fifty two percent of the vote nationally. Uh, so these districts where Joe Biden, you know, won 48, 49 percent, some of these states. He's probably even less popular uh, than that national average. But even a state like Wisconsin that's right at the national average, I mean, Mandela Barnes to win that Senate race is going to have to convince, you know, about 20 percent of the people who disapprove of the job Joe Biden's doing to go ahead and pull the lever for a Democratic senator anyway. Just a really uphill battle. And someone who's I would say several steps to the left of Joe Biden as well in the person of Mandela Barnes, which goes to candidates mattering as well. Before we maybe wander over into Senateville, let's just focus still on the House. Give us, based on where we sit right now, based on your expertise, history, the data, various you know nuggets of polling that you've seen, what is the range of plausible options or outcomes in the House of Representatives within that range, which of the options do you think is probably the likeliest scenario right now in your mind as we head toward early November? So I think we could go anywhere from Democrats picking up a seat in the Senate uh, to maybe Republicans gaining three seats. Um, I, I think we're probably headed towards 51 or 52 Republican seats. 
you know, I think Republicans have the edge uh, in Nevada, a pretty clear edge in Nevada, uh, and a edge in Georgia. Although I didn't necessarily think I'd be saying that about Herschel Walker. Um, but even with the, the real- Fox poll, our Fox poll yesterday had Warnock up four or five. Yeah, but if you look at the bulk of the polling, it's it's been heading Walker's way. Um, you know, that's what our, where our poll averages have been going. The one that I have the most doubt about is that Pennsylvania race, um, you know, where they had Fed, uh, Lieutenant Governor Fetterman up by 10 points. You know, now the polls have it down to about a four-point lead. Fetterman had a stroke. Dr. Oz is Dr. Oz. Um, I, I think that one is just anyone's guess. So a 50-50, like, coin flip in Pennsylvania? I, I really view that race as a, as a coin flip. You know, wow. the, the, the Fetterman's, Fetterman's lead is real, um, but it's just been, you know, tightening and tightening and tightening. Yeah, just eroding. It's been eroding basically every couple of days. It's not just the fact that he had a stroke and he's not been totally transparent at all about the health issues. It's also just the record that people are finally starting to learn about. In fact, I got a DM on social media from a listener who's sort of a right-leaning guy and didn't love Oz, was maybe going to sort of grit his teeth and vote for Oz, but he wasn't really sold. He's like, you know, this would be good, I guess, for Republicans, and we need to check the Biden people. That was his mentality maybe a month ago, he said. And now that he's been watching ads and reading more and hearing more about John Fetterman's actual positions on things, crime and beyond, he is now turning into an enthusiastic Oz voter. Not because he loves Oz, but he didn't realize how bad Fetterman is. And I think maybe there are more people starting to creep into that category or closer to it, which is if it keeps getting tighter and tighter, uh, I think you're right that this could turn out to be a real nail-biter again in the Keystone State. So I agree with your overall assessment on the Senate. I just want to go back to the House of Representatives and the scenarios there because it seems like this foregone conclusion Republicans are going to win control. I think that seems, for the reasons that we've talked about, Highly likely, but just in the range of possibilities, realistically, what does that look like and what's maybe the sweet spot right now in your analysis in terms of what will happen? Yeah, I I think these House races don't come into focus until pretty late in the cycle. Um, You know, in the last week, there are always like four or five House races that weren't on people's radar that all of a sudden tighten. So it's hard to say with specificity. The the trick is that because this is a redistricting year, the parties have drawn maps to try to minimize the number of competitive races. So there just aren't that many seats available to Republicans or Democrats to make big gains. I'd put the range right now at like Republicans plus six to 30. Um, Probably I would expect 22. One twenty-two seats, something like that, because there is a potential for really big Republican gains if you look at the distribution of seats. But it's just too early to say with confidence where things are going to land. So if they only gain at the low end of your range six seats, they would barely, barely, barely have the majority. But they'd have it. But it would be you know, awfully close and uh, very much tenuous. If they have a little bit more breathing room, then obviously they could perhaps be somewhat of a functional governing body, at least on that side of Capitol Hill. But there's also the potential upside. Let's say they were to gain 30 or more seats. What would that night need to look like for them to get into the range of, at the end of the day, 
you know, when the dust settles, maybe they're at 235, 240 or more. What would that need to look like? I mean, it doesn't. So the way that I've described the playing field to people in the past is it's kind of like a valley. Um, and in a neutral year, we're at the bottom of the valley. There's only five seats where Joe Biden won 52 percent of the vote, which, you know, as I mentioned, was his national average. But as you start to move over one way or the other, Biden 51 or Biden 53, Biden 50, Biden 54, uh, you start to kind of climb the sides of the valley and you get more and more seats. So Republicans really wouldn't have to win the generic ballot, win the national popular vote uh, by that wide of a margin uh, to start to get into big seat gains. If they win by four or five points, you, you could see some pretty substantial uh, Republican gains. Could they win by four or five points? They see the average right now is, you know, virtually tied. Maybe the Republicans are up one on any given day. Four or five points would actually be quite a thing for them. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I think what you would need is something like we saw in 2014. And I emphasize we did see this in 2014, that all throughout the summer, people were asking themselves, where's the GOP wave? The generic ballot is tied. A lot of these Senate races, like Tom Cotton, was behind in Arkansas. Um, and then people started tuning in in September and October. And a lot of these undecided voters who didn't care for Barack Obama decided to vote for Democrats. And so we saw a hard break. The Republicans. Uh, we see for Republicans, and we see evidence of that. If you look at our RCP average, the the Republican vote share right now is is almost uh, horizontal, is almost vertical. Um, so that's what they really need is for these undecideds who disapprove of Joe Biden to continue to break hard and decide. You know what? I'm gonna I'm gonna vote Republican this election, which is kind and of what, what we expect. Yeah. What about the counter theory that a lot of the Biden disapprovers, or at least some of them? are maybe left-leaning or they don't love the Republicans and they're upset about Trump or abortion or what have you. So what you might expect from the late breakers and the undecideds who disapprove of Biden might not be the traditional path that they would typically take. Does that resonate with you at all or not really? So I think that was probably true over the summer when the president was at like 37 job approval, then there were a lot of Democrats who were going to vote Democrat anyway, who just were disappointed by the pace of reform in the Biden administration, didn't think he was being aggressive enough. I think those voters have largely come home. Uh, but I think you're left with people who just are, are true swing voters and independents who don't much care for the Biden administration. As for the question about, you know, well, maybe they don't like Republicans either. This was the chorus Back in 2010, you know, Obama even had his like campaign trail. He had this extended metaphor about, you know, they drove the car into the ditch and now they're asking us to pull it out. And he, they were sipping on their Slurpees or whatever. Yeah, there was a Slurpee involved. Yeah. Yeah. And Cousin Pookie <laughs> was in there somewhere, too. Uh -huh, cousin Pookie. Yep. Yep. <laughs> yep. But uh, the fact that that argument was made in 2010, and I mean, if there was ever a year where the Republican Party in recent times had been seemingly discredited after the Bush, right after the Bush second term would probably be it. And yet, you know, Republicans shellacked the Democrats. So I, I just don't I don't think elections are fundamentally choices. I think they're fundamentally referenda. And I think history really bears that out. Maybe it's different this time. I wouldn't bet the family farm on it. OK, fair enough. So if I'm hearing you correctly, as of right now, you believe Republicans will narrowly win the Senate and will gain north of 20 seats in the House. Yes. Yes. OK, well, let's have you back 
maybe midway or late October, see if any of that has changed. In the meantime, we'll be looking for your stuff and reading it at Real Clear Politics. The piece that I'm quoting from, or at least referencing here in this interview, is called Setting Expectations for the House in the 2022 Midterms by my guest, Sean Trendy, who is Senior Elections Analyst at that website. Sean, always appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you. And The Guy Benson Show is back after this. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show, if you're listening on the broadcast, you might recognize our bumper song. It's Lizzo, About Damn Time. And she is at the center of a controversy this week that I think is very stupid. And I wanted to avoid it, but... Now I've been asked about it. I see more people writing and tweeting and talking about it. Basically, at a concert here in D.C. or some event, she was presented with a crystal flute that was gifted to James Madison hundreds of years ago. And I guess it's been sitting around collecting dust for many, many years. No one's playing it. It was a possession of Madison's. And Lizzo was basically lent the flute very briefly by, I believe, the National Archives just to play it on stage at this event. And she only played, I think, two notes, but it was this sort of historical moment. Here's what it sounded like. Big cheers for Madison's flute and Lizzo. And some people are absolutely up in arms about this. Like it was somehow disgracing or diminishing history, some sort of a stain on our history to be taking this flute and giving it to a pop star and rapper to play. I just can't get worked up over it. Lizzo is classically trained as a flautist. She knows what she's doing. It appeared that she had some real reverence for this instrument, and she was nervous to be handling it. She played a few notes and then very carefully handed it back. I think maybe this could get some people interested in Madison or maybe to go visit the National Archive and learn some things about our history. It just doesn't bother me that this happened. Like, did you know about the flute's existence until this happened? It's not like this was somehow some sacred artifact of our history that everyone held very dear and that it was misused in some way. I think it's fine. And in fact, it's a musical instrument. The point of a musical instrument is to be played. Here is a chance to perform. You might even say after all these years dormant that someone played it. So count me among the don't really care crowd on this whole kerfuffle. But if I had to pick a side, I'm pro. I'm in favor of this happening. And you can send me angry tweets and DMs if you want to about it. It's up to you. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show coming up next. Trey Yingst, our colleague in Ukraine, joins us straight ahead. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson.
It's our final hour here on this Friday edition of the Guy Benson Show. Thank you very much for tuning in. 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern time every weekday. And then the final hour, 5 to 6 p.m. Eastern, is generally known as the Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. You can find out more about that very popular and expanding product at thelongdrink.com. That's thelongdrink.com. Always drink responsibly. 21 plus only, please. Our website here at the show is guybensonshow.com. Podcasts on demand, free of charge every day, including bonus Benson on the weekends. GuyBensonShow.com or FoxNewsPodcast.com or wherever you get your podcasts. Follow us on social media at Guy Benson Show, Twitter and Instagram. We can see you online and you can get some extra goodies and content about the program. And now as we kick off our final hour, not exactly happy hour content, as we will go now to Kiev, Ukraine and Trey Yinkst, Fox News foreign correspondent, who is covering everything happening in that country and some fairly significant developments in Russia today as well. Trey, it's good to have you back here. Uh, it's nice to be back. Right now in the Ukrainian capital of Kiev, there are air raid sirens sounding. Every few days, the Russians decide to target the Ukrainian capital again, and these sirens warn people they need to get underground immediately to a safer location. And we can hear them in the background there. This comes on the heels of another Russian attack that killed dozens of civilians in Ukraine hours before these annexations that everyone's hearing about. Let's just start there. I know overall the path of this war, the arc of this conflict has been turning Ukraine's way. The Ukrainians have fought hard. They've gotten munitions and help and intelligence from the West, including, of course, the United States. The Russians have been routed and dismantled and dislodged from certain areas that they were occupying, but they are still maintaining control over certain parts of Ukraine. And some of these atrocities against Ukrainian civilians continue, maybe not on a a daily basis, but on a pretty frequent basis, yes? Absolutely. And in recent days, the Russians have ramped up attacks against civilians in the eastern part of this country. This morning, there was a missile attack against a humanitarian convoy that killed a reported 25 people. And it was an attack conducted by the Russians in a region that just a few hours later, President Putin in Moscow claimed as his own. And it just gives you a sense of how indiscriminate the firing is often and sometimes how discriminate it is because they will decide to target civilians. Other times they are recklessly firing artillery shells and missiles into civilian areas. But the reality is the war grinds on in the eastern part of this country. The Ukrainians are making some territorial gains, especially around the region of Kharkiv. But the war is far from over. And today was a significant day. NATO Secretary General Jens Stoltenberg described it as the most serious day since the start of this conflict when in Moscow, alongside the self-proclaimed leaders of these Ukrainian regions, President Putin announced that he was formally annexing this territory that belongs to Ukraine. What can you tell us about these sham referenda in some of these places? And we saw it in Crimea as well, right, where there's men with guns telling people to come in and vote 
whether or not they want to join Russia. And there's really no choice in the matter. And they get these huge margins of, oh, look, overwhelmingly, the people want to become Russian. They want to join Russia. There's no legitimacy to it whatsoever in the eyes of the world or anyone who's an independent thinker. But yet this is sort of the fig leaf, right, that the Russian regime and what Putin is trying to say uh, pretend that there's some sort of popular groundswell behind these annexations that he's now declared. Absolutely. The Russian leader is trying to make it seem as if there is more support for this invasion than there actually is. In many of these areas inside the Donbass region, this region of eastern Ukraine, civilians have been speaking out, asking questions about the motivations of Russia and asking why this all started to begin with. They were living quiet, peaceful lives in many areas before this began. So today, this announcement was made, but it has real concern for the international community because there is no legitimacy in this process. There are no election observers. There is credible evidence of people being brought to polling places at gunpoint. There is no accountability for this so-called election process. And so it really was a sham. It was just a charade so that Vladimir Putin could point to it as evidence that he made up to support the annexation of this area. And ultimately, it is something that will not be recognized even by Russia's closest allies, countries like Kazakhstan and Serbia, countries that have historically put out statements of support when Russian President Putin made a decision or, or took a significant action. They have said they will not be supporting this and they will not recognize these areas. And other countries that certainly are not agreeing with the West, such as China and such as North Korea, that in the past have issued similar statements of support to the Russian leader, have not come out. They have been totally silent on this issue. Yeah, it's like it, it's hard to overstate how illegitimate a process like this has to be for the North Koreans and the Chinese to be mum on it and not willing to go that far and playing along with what you have, I think, aptly described as a charade. And yet this is what the Russians have done. I saw there was a lot of extreme nationalist rhetoric playing out. They had a big rally. Putin gave a speech to, you know, loud, long ovations from his audience, a sort of echoes of the Soviet era. And they're at least trying to put on this defiant, bullying face, even though on the battlefield they've been losing. I'm just trying to figure out what exactly the goal is here. With the juxtaposition of a lot of this saber-rattling and chest-thumping and triumphalism that they're trying to sell at home versus the actual results on the ground in Ukraine that have been so bad that you've seen huge numbers of their soldiers wiped out or wounded, and they've had to mobilize 300,000 people at least in this controversial move that has a fair amount of critics inside Russia starting to grumble louder and louder. It's just an odd split screen that they're trying to pull off here. Absolutely. And I think we have to look at the aspirations of Vladimir Putin on February 24th. The Russians believed this would be a three-day war. They believed that these tank columns could enter from the north and make their way down to the Ukrainian capital of Kiev. And they were mistaken. The Ukrainians were prepared in many areas. They were dug in. They had anti-tank missiles, these javelins that were supplied by the United States. They had foreign training. 
and they had a will to fight and defend their country. And that will has maintained throughout the conflict more than seven months. And so when you look at those aspirations, the Russians thought early on they could win this war. They could take significant Ukrainian territory and believed, according to reports, that in some areas they would actually be welcomed. Well, the opposite happened. You had civilians who were making Molotov cocktails in their living rooms. You had people defiantly standing in front of tanks to block them from going down the roads of their village. And so you, you take that and you look at what's happened now, the Ukrainians retaking around 17,000 square miles of territory from the Russians. Russians really not advancing on any of the front line. They're fighting a tough battle in the southern part around Kherson, a city in the south. But the reality is Russia is not, by military terms, winning this war. In some areas, it has turned into a war of attrition, and it is a stalemate, and the front line has not moved much. And in others, they have lost significant territory. So when you see Vladimir Putin today in Red Square in Moscow with all of the Russian flags waving and people chanting Russia, 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 this is all part of the charade. This is all part of an effort by the Russian leader to appease the people that we have seen in his country who are frustrated and upset about the decision that he made to invade. We've seen the protests in the streets of Moscow and St. Petersburg. We've seen the lines of cars leading to Georgia and to neighboring Finland. And it's only expected to get worse because with the exception of using another step in the escalation ladder, Vladimir Putin is stuck. He is so deep into this conflict that he has painted himself into a corner that he cannot get out of. And that is why the world is so concerned in watching this war so closely, because he has threatened to use nuclear weapons. And the Ukrainians, according to their intelligence office here in the capital of Kiev, they believe there is a high probability he will use a tactical nuclear weapon in eastern Ukraine. So the question is, how does the world prepare? What would the response be? And how does the international community keep this conflict from unraveling literally into a third world war? Yeah, it's one thing to sort of scoff and sneer, I would say correctly, at this brazen propaganda show that they're putting on. But if it's true that a desperate man, a borderline humiliated man, Vladimir Putin, might be seriously considering using tactical nukes, one or more, in Ukraine, and Ukrainian intelligence is assessing that that risk is higher than ever— that is by no means a laughing matter. And even if it doesn't actually help Russia at all toward any of their goals, that could result in significant loss of life in Ukraine, obviously, but perhaps beyond. And I just don't know what exactly the West is prepared to do should something like that happen. When you talk to Ukrainian officials, they really believe it's something that Putin might truly do as opposed to just a threat he's making to scare people? They do. And while we often talk about the possibility of nuclear warfare in a political sense and what world leaders would do and the decisions that they would make, the Ukrainians are trying to prepare from a military standpoint. Today they have asked for more air defense systems so they could shoot down missiles or, or more planes. They have asked for the ability to get more intelligence from the West to understand if the nuclear posture of the Russians has changed. 
We spoke earlier in the week to the Ukrainian Internal Affairs Minister, Denis Monastersky, and he explained a variety of decisions that the Ukrainians have had to make and actions they've taken over the past several weeks. But he himself believes that this is a real threat and it has to be addressed. And you do raise a great point and a great question. What will the West do if a nuclear weapon is used? Because conventional thought would be to respond equally. But President Biden understands, his allies in Europe understand, that nuclear war cannot happen. It just simply cannot take place. And if it does, we will live in a very different world, a world that will be filled with more death and destruction. And it's something that the NATO Secretary General was trying to stress today, saying what officials have said since World War II, this cannot happen because it will lead to a world that no one is prepared to live in. Trey, the speech that Putin gave today, some longtime observers of his who have covered him for a long time, who speak fluent Russian, there were a whole series of threads on social media of people reacting, experts reacting to what he was saying. And they said this felt and sounded very different than some of the other and previous Jeremiah ads that he's launched against the West. They were arguing that this was less even about Ukraine or about NATO expansion. Those are sort of almost tertiary or ancillary issues, this was him squarely inveighing with unusual venom against the West and specifically the United States. And I wonder what significance that might have and how that's being received in Kiev. I think that when the world watched Vladimir Putin's speech today, it was yet another reminder that he isn't bluffing. And when he says he isn't bluffing, the world should take him seriously. No one thought in the year 2022 that the Russians would launch a ground invasion into neighboring Ukraine, the largest ground invasion since World War II, but it happened. We were here in the capital of Kyiv as the air raid sirens were sounding and the Russians were firing missiles into the city. And the reality is this is someone who really risks losing his power, his authority, And it is something that has to be taken seriously because the Ukrainians understand the perspective of of most people that you talk to that this is someone who will violate human rights. This is someone who will violate international law. They have seen it with their own eyes. They don't have to rely on – No, he'll do it eagerly, right, with impunity. He's done it many times before. He has no compunction about that at all. Absolutely. And there is evidence of war crimes in front of the Ukrainian people. They've dug up their fellow civilians and they've looked at the hands tied behind the backs of Ukrainian men, women and children. They had to exhume the graves of those who had been executed by Russian forces. They understand that this is not this uh, optimistic world that maybe some thought after the world wars. This is a world where there are still dictators and there are still authoritarian leaders like Vladimir Putin who will do anything to stay in power and anything to win. And that is the major concern right now that many who who look at the actions of, of Russian President Putin realize that he isn't bluffing. And if he is painted into a corner and he can't get out of that corner, he may resort to using nuclear weapons. Yeah, he's not just a thug who's vicious. He also has a nuclear arsenal, which makes it more chilling and more concerning. And I know most Americans are focused on other issues right now, including 
the hurricane down in Florida and now on the East Coast, and that's understandable. But this story has not stopped. It hasn't gone away, and it could get a lot more dangerous, which is why we want to keep covering it here. And we're very grateful for the information and contributions from our colleague Trey Yingst, Fox News foreign correspondent who's on the ground in Kiev, Ukraine. Trey, thank you very much, and please stay safe. Thank you. We'll take a break, and we'll come back. It is The Guy Benson Show. Stay tuned. The Guy Benson Show. More next. Back with you here on The Guy Benson Show. It's technically the happy hour, although that was a very sobering conversation with Trey Yingst reporting for us from on the ground in Ukraine. And I'll just say this. Coming up next week, we are taking this show on the road. We will be back as we have been before at the Hoover Institution at Stanford University in Palo Alto, California. They'll be hosting us for the week. I'm very excited to be back out there. We will have just a fantastic set of shows Monday through Friday. And I'm not sure how much I'm allowed to promote or tease on the air just yet. I will simply say and suffice it to say the lineup is incredible. And I am being told by a little birdie that I am allowed to say that we have confirmed next week as one of many guests, Condoleezza Rice, face-to-face in studio out at Stanford. So we will be talking about, of course, the midterms and the elections and everything else, but also some foreign policy. Because as we're focused inward here at home, events are still playing out abroad. And she, in particular, will be a fascinating guest to have on the program. I look forward to picking her brain here with you on The Guy Benson Show. That is next week, Monday through Friday, from the West Coast. Really looking forward to it. The Guy Benson Show Happy Hour continues straight ahead. Talking about the issues you care about. Guy Benson. It's the happy hour on this Friday. Happy Friday. Thanks for listening. Almost to the weekend together. But first, I want you to hear a little bit of my conversation earlier with Senator Ted Cruz, Republican of Texas. He kicked off today's show with us. Here is a portion of that discussion. What do you make of the attacks against Republican governors who are just, in my view, putting the mirror up to the left, forcing them to look at what they've created? I, I think that's exactly right, that, that, that this has forced a, even a tiny bit of the national conversation. You know, this idea is something that I proposed a year ago. A year ago, I introduced legislation uh, in the Senate to move illegal immigration to places like it move illegal immigrants to Martha's Vineyard, to Nantucket, to Cupertino, California, to Palo Alto, California, to Rehoboth Beach, Delaware, basically all of the places that rich liberals go vacation and and happily say visit the problems of illegal immigration on everybody else but us. And in a year and a half as president, we have seen under Joe Biden 4.4 million people cross illegally into the United States. Texas is bearing the brunt of it. I spent a lot of time down on the border. I see the human tragedies, the children being abused, the women being sexually abused, the dead bodies, the, the, the people dying of overdoses. And this actually goes back to the point we were talking about a minute ago about Biden's lies on gas prices. Part of what facilitates these disastrous left-wing Democrat policies 
is the corporate media is so corrupt that they will not cover it. They ignore it. It does not exist. And amazingly enough, 50 illegal immigrants show up at Martha's Vineyard, and suddenly all of these rich liberals lose their minds. Mm-hmm. And, and it illustrated the utter hypocrisy of the left, that, that, that why did they care about the 50 illegal immigrants in Martha's Vineyard, but they didn't give a damn about the 53 dead bodies in a tractor trailer outside of San Antonio that the cartels had let die uh, of, of oppressive heat. Those bodies they don't care about. They don't care about the children being brutally assaulted every single day by the cartels. And they don't give a damn about the over 100,000 people that died last year of fentanyl overdoses and, and opioid overdoses because of the Biden border crisis. This was exactly the right thing to do. And I'll tell you what, I commend Greg Abbott and I commend Doug Ducey and Ron DeSantis for following through on, on, on that suggestion. And they need to do even more. You know, the mayor of, of D.C. said it was an emergency when she had 6,000 illegal immigrants. Well, you know what? D.C. ought to have 60,000 and then 600,000. The mayor of New York declared an emergency uh, again with a few thousand. We ought to send 50,000. We ought to send 500,000. Why? Because Biden is happily sending 4.4 million to Texas and the rest of the country. Senator Cruz, I want to ask you in the time that we have left about a foreign policy issue We've watched these protests in the streets of Iran, some extremely courageous women in particular defying this regime, and they're cracking down on journalists. They're arresting these women. Several of them have been murdered, one of which sparked a lot of this. And I just wonder if you would reflect on what we're seeing from the people of Iran and then also juxtapose it with this fixation, this obsession with the Biden administration that will say nice words about these women and their protests, but meanwhile, they are actively seeking to further enrich the regime with this utterly foolish and foolhardy nuclear deal that would somehow be worse than the Obama era one. And like to add insult to injury, it's being negotiated via the Russians of all people. It's just very hard for me to reconcile. Well, it, it, it's impossible to reconcile rationally. Um, let me say, first of all, the, the, the women and the men we see in the streets of Iran that are, that, that are protesting, they're demonstrating incredible courage, incredible heroism. And, and the people of Iran needs, need to know that the American people in the world stands with them and encourages them. They are facing brutal theocratic dictators who are evil, who are horrific. The Ayatollah who rules them with a steel fist, he is a vicious theocrat. My full interview with Ted Cruz, Republican senator from the Lone Star State, available online at GuyBensonShow.com, also part of our free podcast on demand every single day. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your podcasts. When we come back, it's the home stretch. So, about last night, we recap after this. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on this Friday. So close to the weekend, you can almost taste it. Maybe it tastes a little bit like long drink. Maybe. It's the Guy Benson Show. Thanks for listening. GuyBensonShow.com, our website. Podcast, always free. Bonus Benson on the weekends as well. It's on demand, no charge to you. Well, last night, it was sort of interesting. Between yours truly and producer Christine, one person 
was at the pop music concert of a starlet, and the other one was watching football. And to the shock of everyone, myself included, I was not the one watching football. That was Cookie, watching Dolphins, Bengals getting all fired up over the Tua controversy and protocols involving concussions and all of that. Meanwhile, I was dancing and singing the night away with a beer in my hand at the Anthem, which is a very cool venue. It's about two to 3,000 people capacity. It was packed. And it was nice. The bars were really nice. The lighting was cool. And it was a very fun place to watch a concert in D.C., right on the Potomac River at the Wharf. I'd never been to that venue before. But I made the decision, as I said yesterday, I think just on Wednesday, I finally decided, yes, we're going to this Carly Rae Jepsen concert. I bought some tickets online, and a great time was had. little date night. We had some sushi nearby, and then we went to the show. There was an opening act that I didn't know, although the audience seemed to know a few of her songs. Adam said he recognized one or two of them. And then out came Carly Rae Jepsen with her band. It was her plus six other people. There was a drummer, a bassist, a guitarist, a keyboard and saxophonist guy, and then two backup singers, vocalists. And they put on a good show. There were songs of hers that I recognized, sort of the most popular ones. Then there was Cut to the Feeling that I was waiting for. That was the number one song I wanted to hear. And then along the way, there were a couple other songs that I was unfamiliar with, but I really liked. And as a non-super fan of Carly Rae Jepsen's, I'm not afraid to admit that I had my phone out with the Shazam app where I was having my phone listen to the song and then tell me what song it was so I can then investigate further. And perhaps there were some people standing around me noticing this and judging me because a lot of people were big Carly Rae stands and they knew all the words to every song. That wasn't me, but I thought it was worth it. She put on a very fun show. She was very bouncy and bubbly and enjoyable. And it was the very last song of the concert at the end of her encore. That was the moment I had been waiting for, which was cut to the feeling. And the crowd went wild. People dancing and singing. This was one where I knew every word and was belting it out. And it's just such a great song and so upbeat and fun. It's a great pop song, despite what producer Christine says in her wrong judgment joined in her dissenting opinion by Justice Wyatt, who's also wrong. But I can tell you, 2,500, 3,000 people in that building last night were absolutely rocking out to cut to the feeling. And I had a great time. I'll just also say this about the Carly Rae Jepsen concert experience. Sometimes you'll go to a show and the band or the artist will do a lot of talking. They'll come out. They'll play a song or two and then talk. They'll pander to the local city. Oh, we love you, D.C., all this stuff, or wherever you're at. Sometimes they'll get political right, and they feel like, oh, especially in D.C., I've got to talk about politics. I've got to signal how I feel about things or whatever. There was absolutely none of that. She barely spoke to us at all, like a few throwaway comments introducing songs. That was it. It was just song after song after song, no filler, no preaching, none of that. It was music the whole time. She was only off stage waiting for the encore cheering for 
It felt like two or three minutes at the absolute most. And then she came back out for three more, culminating in cut to the feeling. And I left a very satisfied customer. And I recognize that there are some people working on this show right now and perhaps even listening in this audience who are haters, right? They are negative Nellies who feel like this is an embarrassing thing or like it's lame that I went to this show or Carly Rae Jepsen's basic or whatever you want to say. And I'll just say I recognize your hate. I recognize your judgment and I reject it with relish. I stand by this call. It was a good one. It was fun. And I dare say producer Christine, had she been at this concert, would have gotten a few cocktails at the bar, which was easily accessible, by the way. And they had several of them throughout the venue. And she would have gotten into it and enjoyed the time. So you can disagree. You can send me DMs mocking my choices. That's fine. I know our podcast audience continues to grow. Today is National Podcast Day, which seems like an appropriate time to tell you that we got our numbers in for September with October right around the corner here and just blowing out our previous records, blowing out, like not even close. And we are so grateful to all of you. It's incredible to be growing this show on the terrestrial side, on the streaming side, on the digital stuff, and, of course, on the podcast. We are just so thankful. That being said... If you're a listener, podcast or otherwise, and you are mocking me for going to a Carly Rae Jepsen concert on a Thursday night, I'm sorry. I I will simply not back down. I won't. And I hope that you think of me as a person of conviction who sticks to my guns. (laughs) And I'm going to do that on behalf of this person that I'd never seen before. And you know what? I would see her again. I would go see her again. I would. Adam was a fan of the show. He enjoyed it. He said he would not necessarily race back to a Carly Rae Jepsen show because he's sort of checked the box now and seen it. But I think if she were to come back to my neck of the woods in the next couple of years, perhaps with some new songs, one or two of which I really liked, I might now bring someone else because Adam might not want to go with me. Maybe I'll force Cookie to come down from New Jersey to prove how wrong she is about this. So now I've had my say about my big evening. It's been an unusually busy music concert attending season for me. I'm not a huge music person overall. And yet, in the last couple of months, I saw Coldplay in London. I saw the Backstreet Boys at the invitation of a Backstreet Boy. Now I've seen Carly Rae Jepsen. I feel like I might be missing another one. I've seen an unusual number of concerts, at least based on my usual pattern and I'll tell you it's enjoyable. I think it's fun. Maybe I'll do some more. All right, Christine, let the mockery begin. I know that you're just waiting to get in here. You know what? I'm going to go a different direction here with this. Oh. So you like Carly Rae Jepsen, and she's from Canada, correct? She is Canadian, yes, as it turns out. She's Canadian. I, too. I, too, like music from Canada. And I would like. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, no, no. Don't. Don't. <laughs> I know where this is going now. So I'm I'm going to let this. I'm just going to let this lie. I'm not going to say any more. Dan, I don't know why you're laughing. No, I'm, I'm actually so glad that you brought this up because. I didn't even bring anything up yet. 
No, you did. Oh, you did. I didn't even say because, anything yet. Yeah, you're not. You're not talking about Celine. You're not talking about Shania and other fantastic Canadian artists. You're talking about a different band that I had forgotten that you liked, like Love. Which which reminds me that you have absolutely no standing to make fun of me about liking Carly Rae Jepsen. Wait a second. He, oh, you are good at this. You just turned this whole argument against me. I was going to say that to you. That no, you, you raised have it. no stand. You can't make fun of me anymore for loving Nickelback no, no, no. because no, you like yeah, Carly Rae. There Red. it is. There it is. Nickelback. You like Nickelback, and you're going to come here and tell me that cut to the feeling is bad and Carly Rae Jepsen is lame? Ma'am, have you no shame at all? I had forgotten that you like Nickelback until you chose to raise this issue in an epic cookie backfire. No, I don't I don't look at it that way. I look at this. I'm sure you don't. This but you just, also look at Nickelback and say, oh, that's a good band. So uh, I that, question your judgment. I was explaining to Dan how much I love Nickelback. Like, truly love them. I There's mm-hmm. so many songs that I love. And I, I was just looking up to see if I could even see them on tour. And like what? Like what's a big Nickelback song that you love so much? How you remind me? Ooh, uh-huh. what? Come on, photograph. Look at oh. this photograph. <laughs> Rockstar, far away. Oh, Rockstar is so bad. Some days, probably. Some days, probably my all-time favorite. Far away. I, as I've stated before, I don't hate Far Away. But let me just—it's it, <laughs> important for me to underscore this point. Producer Christine, for the last 48 hours, has been heaping scorn, opprobrium, and ridicule on my head because I went to go see Carly Rae Jepsen and some of her hot jams and appealing bops as if I have bad taste. When Producer Christine, I would imagine, I'm just envisioning her right now, already blowing up her Christmas inflatables because it's almost October, surrounded by out-of-season Christmas inflatables in her new hot dog costume that she's ordered to replace the other one that got, quote unquote, accidentally thrown out, sipping boxed wine and cranking Nickelback. And I simply will not take lectures on taste from someone doing any of those things, let alone all of them. Christine, what do you have to say for yourself? Have you ever heard the song If Everyone Cared? Because I'm sure I have not. It's a good bop as as Mm, how you... I don't think that anything in the catalog of Nickelback qualifies as a bop. Dan, you're the music guy. Please back me up on this. They don't produce bops, whatever you think of them. They don't produce bops. They produce songs that got very popular, but, I mean, the hate they've gotten in the past, like, 10 years, you just can't get over that. And it's just one of the more fascinating things I've learned about Christine, that she's a huge Nickelback fan. Like, I haven't heard someone out loud admit that they're a Nickelback fan in a very long time. I know. So let me just quickly poll here. Dan, if you had to choose one or the other, a Carly Rae concert with me or a Nickelback concert, if they even exist, with Cookie, which one would you pick? Well, I already added Cut to the Feeling to my running playlist, so I'm going Carly Carly Rae Jepsen. Yeah, there's, there's your answer right there, Wyatt. I know you were skeptical of Carly Rae. But if you had those two choices, binary choice, which one would you pick? Well, I, I've never heard of a, I never heard of Nickelback before. Like I've never heard a song, so I, I, I couldn't tell you. You know what? Let me give you a homework assignment, Wyatt. 
Over the weekend, why don't you go down the rabbit hole on YouTube and listen to some offerings from Nickelback, and then you can answer the question perhaps next week. Sounds good. Maybe I'll ask this exact same question of Condoleezza Rice. That'd be a good use of my time next week when we actually are going to interview her in person out at Hoover at Stanford doing the whole week of shows from Palo Alto, California, Monday through Friday next week. The guest lineup is unreal. I am so excited for next week's shows. I hope you are as well. Much more to come on that front on Monday's show from Hoover. In the meantime, have a fantastic weekend. Stay safe. Stay sane. It's The Guy Benson Show. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.